Okay, super. Well, good evening, everyone. Good afternoon or good morning, depending where you are in the world. I know we have people from all over the world joining us today. This is session 10, financing models for NFTs and the metaverse, which is probably like, uh, you know, financing models for organizations in this world. This is a very interesting topic. And it's also a very interesting topic to think about how we can do in, uh, how we can handle in this period, because it's a very complicated topic. It is a very legally intensive topic. And it is a topic where even people with a ton of experience in this topic will go to specialized lawyers with even more experience in this topic to seek advice. And I know in our course, we have a mixed level of knowledge about these types of topics. In fact, for I think many people, a very low level of knowledge about securities law, and I'm sure there's some people that have you know, more advanced knowledge. And the way I was thinking about this was it would have been easy to overwhelm everyone with facts, figures, datas, cases, etc. But I'm not sure that helps every that helps anyone. Whereas I think what might be the right approach and the right answer here is leave with some very simple frameworks, some very simple ideas. And these simple ideas, though, are applicable over and over and over and over again. I have, I think, a quite sophisticated understanding of this topic, but the way I think about it in practice is actually very simple. And so my goal today is to get less than 10 ideas in your head, maybe six or seven, and these ideas will help you in many different ways. They will explain why many things are the way they are in the financing environment. Um, I see this constantly on my Twitter feed that people are confused about why things are financed the way they're financed. We will see where the risky areas are and where legal risk might be. Now, you're not going to learn the legal risk from this course, what you should learn is when you're within a hundred miles of potential legal risk so that you go find someone qualified, a securities attorney really is what you want, to help you think through what your legal risk might be. This is what I hope to accomplish today. And so I really simplified uh, my slides, and I hope I hope this will work. So let's jump in. And really, there's two things. <laughs> We're going to go into two sections. What are the key frameworks within U.S. securities law that change financing models? 
And then what are the financing? Oh, that says financial. I'll fix that. Financing models in use today. And you'll notice I'm going to be focused exclusively on U.S. law. And the framework that we um, will cover here is a very U.S.-specific framework. Almost no other country thinks about it in exactly this way. And then you might say, well, why are we doing that? It's a global field. It's a global industry. Why are we just focused on what the Americans are doing? And the reality is, the reason uh, this is the case is that the startup industry in general, and I think very large parts of the crypto industry in general, and large parts of the NFT and metaverse industry in general, and the broader technology industry in general, in the broadly speaking, English language world or uh, Europe and US world tends to be concentrated in the United States. China has a very different model. Russia has a different model. But in the world that public blockchains are heavily used in that world, what we tend to see is that there's a heavy concentration in the United States. And given that heavy concentration in the United States, the laws and regulations of the United States tend to be fairly um, <laughs> they shape the space for everyone else. And so a lot of what you see is the United States. It might be uh, very specific to America, but it really does shape the space tremendously in a lot of what we see. So this is what we're going to talk about. I can't possibly disclaim this session enough. Like this is not legal advice. It wouldn't even be legal advice in the United States. In the United States, you'd still, as I said, I know 20 times more than this in the presentation, and I wouldn't do any of these things without a lawyer. Right? And it certainly doesn't apply outside the United States because these are the US rules. So with all of these caveats and all of these ideas, let's, let's jump in. And I was laughing when I wrote the title for this section, some relevant snippets of US securities law, and this is exactly what it is. I mean, U.S. securities law is a gigantic body of work, of case law, um, with all types of nuanced and edged ca edge cases that have been, over time, uh, established. And here we're going to have four slides in fairly large font to talk about. But what I was trying to do is distill the parts that might matter. Uh, for people and might matter in a practical way. So, first thing is, how does, where does this all come from? Actually came from the Great Depression, which is wild, but it's true. 
The basis for most of these laws is from 1933 and 1934. Now, there have been modifications of these laws over time. There have been new laws over time. But the basic laws are from there. That's all we need to know for this slide. That's all we need to know. Now, here is the single most important concept you need to learn today. And quite frankly, the single most explanatory concept in the whole financing world of startups and crypto assets in general, of which NFTs and metaverse are a subset. And the concept is that the United States defines a security that needs to be registered using the Howey test. And it is not designed prescriptively as it is in other jurisdictions. So in many other jurisdictions, people or legislators say, a security is these 17 specific things. Derivative contracts, bonds, options on publicly traded securities, etc., etc., etc. And so you can go down the list and say, is my thing one of these things? And if the answer is no, then it's not a security and you can kind of go off and do what I'm planning to do. The um, the United States is different. It's principles-based in how it approaches this. And in that case, you have to analyze each specific potential security individually. And the principles are quite abstract. They fit here on this page. And what they say, the Howey test it says, is you need to look at this potential security and ask yourself four questions. And if the answer is yes to all four questions, then it's a security. And if the answer is no to any one of the four questions, it's not. And you think, oh, well, that's great. It's going to be hard to become a security. And the, the reality is, is most things that most people will think of, most casual, naive, or even like kind of medium sophisticated ideas that people will think of for raising money, do turn out to be securities under this test, which is bizarre, but yet true. So let's go through them. The first part of the test is an investment of money. This is the most straightforward. Uh, if you're volunteering at your local church, it's, this is not going to be a security. Right? This is an investment of money. Now, money doesn't mean fiat dollars. If you sell 
a security and you take Ethereum, for example, that's still going to meet this test. It's still going to be considered an investment of money. It's not an investment of US dollars, an investment of money more broadly. Um, the second test, in a common enterprise. So this is the way I think about it is something that has a, a definable mission organization goal, etc. It's interesting, people try and get around this by saying, oh, but there's not a legal entity here, or um, we call ourselves decentralized, but that doesn't matter so much, right? Like the SEC is going to look at this point conceptually that this this a common enterprise where we're going to try and do something together. And kind of the most simple and basic example is a company, right? So if I founded a company and this company was supposed to sell NFTs, and it was called 6529 NFT Limited, or Incorporated, and I say, would you like to buy shares in my company? Yeah, it's a common enterprise where I have a company where I'm going to do something. And so the interesting thing is like, no, I'm not going to do it with the company. I'm just going to sell you these tokens, and we're decentralized. And it doesn't matter so much. Like the legal form doesn't matter so much. It's does this have a coherent and cohesive set of activities? The third leg of the stool with expectation of profits. Are people buying what it is you're selling for the way they are buying? any other investment um, vehicle. If someone sells you a very nice six-course dinner, it might be an investment of money in a common enterprise that I've run, but you're not buying with expectation of profits. If someone buy, sells you a pair of Nike shoes, not buying them with an expectation of Profit. I'll hold that example, I'll come back to later. Um, if someone sells you a boost up in a game, probably not something bought for the expectation of profits. If someone sells you something that says, yeah, buy this token, we are going to moon because of A, B, C, D, E reason. Well, we start to get problematic. We still have to meet all the tests, but we start to get problematic. By the way, kind of dumb level disclaimers don't work. So you see this all the time in our space. Like, like, Someone says something that is absolutely, certainly, without a doubt, financial advice. 
And then at the bottom of their tweet says, not financial advice, NFA. That doesn't count for anything. doesn't mean anything. Right? Nothing about that is relevant. The substance is what you do do. Um, third, fourth part. To be derived from the efforts of others. And this is the part that crypto teams really try and focus on. Um, which is saying, like, is there an, identi an identifiable group of people who are, you know, working to make this a success? Are there insiders? And the reason it's interesting from a regulatory perspective is they're insiders. The theory here about legislation and disclosure and what have you is about information asymmetry. If there are insiders, they might know more about the project than you do. And if they know more about the project than you do, then they might withhold information from you and sell you a security and you might be taken advantage of. What's something that would not meet this test? Well, very famously, the United States has said and continues to say that Bitcoin is not a security. And they believe that a combination of mining and wallet holding and how transactions are processed is sufficiently decentralized that the fourth leg doesn't get triggered. There's kind of other legs do exist for Bitcoin, right? People buy Bitcoin and invest with money. Bitcoin is a kind of obvious common enterprise, right? It's trying to make a store of value or payment network. Most people are buying Bitcoin with the hope that the, that the price of Bitcoin goes up. And, but the, um, they're saying it's not an identifiable team that's driving the value of Bitcoin and that it's derived from the efforts of others. It's like a commodity. It's like if you buy a barrel of oil, people say, oh, well, no, that's not a security. Now, is the value of oil in some very, very weird abstract way derived also from the efforts of others? Sure, sort of, but there's not like one producer of oil that has specific power over the characteristics of oil. There's many producers around the world. There's many users around the world. There's no real information asymmetry in oil that someone needs to come and disclose. And it's viewed, for example, that Bitcoin um, has also reached that point of decentralization of not 
information asymmetry. So, what are things that almost certainly are securities in the token space? Obviously, if I, we had said, if we have 6529 NFTs Inc., and I go out and say, hey, would you like to buy 10 of the 100 shares? I have this really great idea. I'm going to mint NFTs and tweet about them. We're going to make lots of money together. That is a trivially a security. It's an investment of money in a common enterprise with expectation process to, to be derived from the efforts of others, a.k.a. me. Where a lot of people go wrong is they say, oh, well, if we do this as a token, we're somehow going to like get away from this, right? If we say, oh, we're going to mint 6529 DAO tokens, and they're going to get a share of the revenue from all the other NFTs, 6529 mints, without going into great detail on the situation-specific areas, that has risk that it's a to uh, security. The fact that it's not specifically shares in the company doesn't change anything. It's an investment of money in a common enterprise expectation of profit to be derived by the efforts of others. The fact that I said it's a token, not shares in a company, doesn't really count for anything. So, If there's only one thing you remember today, it's this. Remember these four prongs. It's like, you know, 15 words. And when you see someone offering something, as of does this, is this likely to look like this, right? This is okay, well, so what does it matter if it's a security? Well, it matters because if it is a security, in the United States, and I'm going to summarize, but this is effectively right, you either have to, A, register it with the Securities and Exchange Commission, B, sell it only to a certain set of sophisticated investors, or C, take advantage of the crowdfunding exemptions to registration. These are your only options. There's no fourth option, I mean, for practical purposes. So, who are these sophisticated investors who can buy unregistered securities? They fall into two categories, accredited investors and qualified purchasers. Accredited investors is the one you hear about casually um, online. It's the bigger category. It's the more common category. It's the lower standards category. Um, qualified purchasers is a more institutional category. Don't 100% quote me on this, but the the I think every qualified purchaser is also an accredited investor, but not all accredited investors are qualified purchasers. I believe that's correct. Let's look at the accredited investor standards. 
you have to meet one of the standards, not all of them. They have annual income over $200,000 for the last two years, or $300,000 if you include your spouse or partner. And you believe, you have a reasonable belief, this applies for the upcoming years. Or you have a net worth of over a million dollars, excluding your primary residence, so excluding your home equity. This can also be jointly with your spouse or partner. Or you meet certain professional criteria. You own, you hold one of the securities industry certifications, licenses that you've studied and passed the test for, Series 765 or 82. You're a high-level officer director in the company that's selling the security. You're, you're a client of a family office that's itself an accredited investor, or for in a fund, you're a knowledgeable employee of the fund, or there's some other legal rules for legal entities. But basically, it is you're rich, or kind of rich, or you have financial services expertise. A qualified purchaser is similar type of things, but with higher numbers. It's 5 million and 25 million, so we can ignore it for the purposes of discussion. And the theory here is either you're rich, in which case, if you go buy an unregistered security and you weren't given all the information you needed to properly evaluate it, and it turns out that it was risky, and it turns out that you lose your money. Well, it's okay, you're rich. You can survive it. That's theory one. Theory two is, well, maybe you're not rich, but maybe you're like, have deep expertise in the financial services industry, you'll meet the professional criteria, and so you can take care of yourself. You can make the correct decisions. It is a paternalistic model of regulation. It divides the world into two buckets. It divides the world into people who can make these decisions by themselves and either have the uh, expertise to make good decisions or the financial wherewithal not to be wrecked by these decisions. Which is not to say that people who make $200,000 a year couldn't buy an unregistered a sufficiently large amount of an unregistered security to also destroy their lives financially, right? I mean, it's not, it's not actually the case that they won't do that. Um, and then people, you say, look, we, we don't, we, it's too risky for you. You need more protection, more information, less risk of information asymmetry, 
for people to be able to sell this to you, they need to come in and disclose a lot more information. The I think this was sort of uncontroversial a few decades ago. And with the democrat democratization of finance in general, the internet in general, and then really much more so with crypto, I think there's an interesting debate on and this debate, by the way, tends to lean one way when prices are going up and a different way when prices are going down. But there's an interesting debate on if this is for the good of the people who are not accredited investors or if it's bad for them. You know, does it exclude them from exciting and potentially valuable investment opportunities? Or does it protect them from scams? Is this excellent protection for the unsophisticated? Or is this a way for the rich to get richer and everyone else not to have access to the same opportunities? There is also, you know, some people who feel that this legislation is no longer exactly right. And say, like, many states allow gambling. They allow lotteries. Those things are obviously bad for the unsophisticated. They allow anyone to participate in them. It seems strange that this would be allowed. They're allowed to invest quote-unquote, in lottery tickets, but they're not allowed to invest in potentially a bad investment. We're not going to conclude on this topic, but these are the types of issues that arise. So, this is who is allowed to purchase unregistered securities. Now, what does registration mean? Basically, you have to file for an IPO. It's that type of model. You have to make an S1, it's a registration statement, you send it to the SEC, they read it, they ask you questions, they ask you to make changes, you send it back, they read it, so on and so forth. And then you can sell generally shares to the public or other financial institutions, but generally shares. And then you have a whole bunch of ongoing reporting requirements. When do you have to file financial statements with the SEC? What things you need to disclose, what are your officers doing, are they buying or selling shares, when are they trading, when are they not trading. All of these things are actually pretty good things. But they are things that are hard to do in a natively crypto context but they're also expensive. Even for a fairly small company, preparing to, fly, you know, to uh, do a registration will be a seven-figure cost. 
and probably seven figures of annual compliance. And so you can't really be a person who wants to run a half million dollar um, common enterprise and practically speaking, file. So I say, well, okay, we have a solution for that. That's the crowdfunding exemption. And this is reggae. Reggae is the exceptions to registration. But there was a specific one done for crowdfunding. Um, the you can do effectively a light form of registration if you're crowdfunding within certain hurdles, 20 million and 75 million respectively. And so you don't have to go through the whole full regulatory regime of being a public company like Google. You do have some reporting requirements. You can't just go out there and push your hand up and say, hey, look, I'm crowdfunding. I don't have to do anything. That's not how it works. But it's a lighter form. It's significantly lighter registration form. So, practically speaking, if something is a security, you can sell it using one of three ways. One, to accredited investors and qualified purchasers. Two, to the public post-registration. Three, to the public under the crowdfunding exemptions, but within certain limits on how much you can raise. These are, or if, you know, if it's not a security, you don't have to do any of these things, but then it really has to not be a security. On this section, this is what I would like you to remember. The Howey test and these three models for securities. Accredited investors, registration, reggae, crowdfunding exemptions. Now, how does this translate to real life? How does this translate to what people do? Well, the primary model for financing technology startups remains venture capital firms. What are venture capital firms? Venture capital firms are investment funds who have a general partner who is um, a company, but it's you can think of it as the people running the fund, and limited partners who are the investors. The investors in venture capital funds are accredited investors or qualified purchasers because units of a venture capital fund are definitely securities. And who are these famous institutional investors? Well, interestingly, the largest institutional investors in the world are pension funds. So it's kind of funny that like, when you think of institutional investors and they're very big and 
you know, not like a common person. It's primarily the retirement savings of school teachers and firefighters that have been aggregated, that become, because they have been aggregated, a very large number, who then have people managing those retirement savings. And one of the things those people do is invest those retirement savings into venture capital funds who then go and invest them in startups. Other buckets of typical investors, sovereign wealth funds, some corporate treasuries, family offices, which is just a fancy word for um, effectively an investment fund or an investment team for a really, really rich family, and ultra high net worth or high net worth individuals. But really, the biggest investor in venture capital funds tends to be pension funds. They have more money than any of these people. So VCs are both allowed to invest in unregistered securities and also have the orientation skill, uh, mental desire to invest in technology startups. The Most of the, pretty much all of the infrastructure firms in the NFT space, all of the gaming firms in the NFT space, many of the metaverse firms in the NFT space, and some of the project teams in the NFT space, Yuga, Doodle, etc., etc., have raised money from venture capital funds. Why? Because it is safe, easy, and fast. Venture capital firms can make a decision fairly quickly. And by making that decision, they can write a check for two, five, ten, twenty million dollars. You do not, you can sell them normal equity. You don't have to go through any complicated convolutions of designing some unique instrument to make sure that it's not a security. You're going to say, look, you can buy shares in our company. And you, the entrepreneur, don't have to worry about any regulatory risk. Um, they're very much allowed to buy shares in your company. And this practical aspect tends to be fairly dominant in how these firms are financed. Because most of the other ways you can do it are actually pretty complicated. Um, you certainly, you're certainly um, not going to go register to go public as a startup, right? You don't, you don't have the capacity, the money, you're not right, mature enough. And so this tends to be if you're going to sell a security, a very easy and fast way to do it. What else are we seeing? Well, we see DAOs. And DAOs is one of my pet peeves in the space because 
Tao literally means something very different. It says it right there in its name, Decentralized Autonomous Organization. DAOs were meant to be something like smart contracts that engaged in economic activity. They were actually decentralized and autonomous when first thought of in this way. Today, people use the word DAO very differently. They use it as a group of people doing something. A group of people doing something is neither decentralized, nor is it autonomous. It is a group of people doing something. And when you have a group of people doing something, if they're not careful, one of the things they will discover they are doing is selling unregistered securities to people. So my conceptual problems with the way the terms are being used aside, what do we see in terms of DAOs in the NFT space? Well, we see DAOs that are effectively, correctly, legally organized and compliant. These DAOs usually have registered a company, LLC. They usually KYC check the credential, check the information and write down, you know, your name and social security number and address of everyone investing. And they ask them to provide documentation or self-certification that they are accredited investors. A good example of this is Flamingo Dow. Flamingo Dow does all these things. It is a DAO, they call themselves a DAO, but effectively they're a company. And effectively they comply with similar hurdles for their members as a venture capital fund does. There are some differences in how they make decisions. You know, the, all the DAO members can contribute to decisions where in a venture capital fund, the investors typically do not contribute to the decisions. But from a legal financial infrastructure perspective, it's very, very similar. Then there's what the NFT projects tend to call DAOs, which are all over the map, very poorly organized. I think in many cases, very poorly thought out. And some of them are going to get in trouble because they are, in fact, the type of activity that really should only be open under U.S. law, without judging whether it's right or wrong, to accredited investors, and they're not limiting it to accredited investors. And some of them are not going to get in trouble with the SEC in any way, but are kind of lying to the members. You know, you see DAOs of the type that say, oh, you're a DAO, and you're in the DAO if you own the project's NFTs, but the equity is owned by someone else, 
the governance of that equity is owned by someone else. The decisions are all made by someone else. And sure, there's a Dow Council and they'll ask the people their opinion here or there. Well, I mean, that's no different than having a customer advisory board. It's just if you told people, if you bought this NFT, you're part of our customer advisory board or community advisory board, it doesn't sound as appealing as being part of the DAO. And so what's going on there is I think they're misleading people for people to attribute more value to their token. And it's not great. I think it's going to be very hard for most non-legally organized DAOs to operate in a compliant manner, the way they're doing it. I'm not going to judge any specific project. Um, I don't know all the facts of any specific projects, but I believe there's certain quote-unquote DAOs operating in our space that effectively are violating securities law. They might not be doing it on purpose, but they are effectively doing it. Now, token offerings. This was a very big deal in the quote-unquote ICO area, 2017-2018, where everyone and their brother, mother, sister, parent was going around saying, oh, we're going to do an ICO. We're going to sell you this token. It will fund our operation, and we're going to make the X4Y, the token for doctors to organize their medical practices or what have you. The reality is the vast majority of these ICOs were actually securities. And eventually the SEC cracked down on them and people stopped doing it because they didn't want to get in trouble. I believe a typical fungible token ICO it's very hard to do as a not a security. Or if I want to be more precise, it is very hard to make it not a security, but also achieve the objectives that the organizer of the token is likely trying to achieve. What, what do I mean by that? Well, most of the time, people who are doing an ICO are trying to raise money to do something. They have an idea. They woke up one morning, they said, oh, I want to do, execute this idea, and oh, I need a team to do it, and in order to get that team, I need money to hire that team and to do marketing and what have you. And because of this, I need to raise money. The reality is most things of that genre are going to end up meeting the Howey test. You're going to sell the token for people are going to buy it with an expectation of profit 
It's definitely an investment of money. There's almost certainly a common enterprise. And it is most likely reliant on the efforts of others, namely you. And so the issue here is you can make a token offering that is not a security. It's just unlikely that you want to. That that's usually where the problem was. Not that like it's it's impossible to do it. It's just that once you do it, it's not likely to meet your objectives because your objectives usually were of the in the genre of I want to build something and I need money to build something and I'm the person who's going to build that thing that I'm trying to build. And that ends up generally, likely, not being sufficiently decentralized to not be a security. So I'm skeptical of most token offerings not being securities. Now, NFT sales, this is newer. This is very interesting. And I suspect there is a little bit more fertile ground here to do it correctly, while also plenty of pitfalls to do it incorrectly. People can sell NFTs, which is underlying there's a form of token, that do all types of things. It could be a piece of art. I'm an NFT photographer, I sold a piece of art. It could be a PFP in a PFP project. It could be a token that gives you some type of utility in a game or application. It could be any of these things. Generally, if it's this type of thing like I just described, that they are buying something, and that thing that they're buying is an object, that if it was sold pre-tokens, I went to the gallery, I bought a painting. I went to the real estate agent, I bought a piece of land. These things are not securities. These things are perfectly fine as financing methods. These things are income or revenue to the person selling them to you. And they're not a financial instrument, right? Where people get in trouble, though, and how I think people are going to get in trouble with NFTs is they say, oh, yeah, you buy this cool NFT, it's a, and it's in the, it will, have a share of the project DAO, and the project DAO is going to get 50% um, of the royalties from all the trades that happen later with the NFTs, and also 10% of the primary sales of future NFTs, so the DAO is going to be valuable and you'll have a share of the DAO. Well, congratulations, you've made a security. The real-life equivalent would be you go to a gallery and say, and the gallerist is like, oh, I'm going to sell you this painting, and when you buy this painting, you're going to have a really beautiful painting. It's by Keith Haring. And also, I am going to give you one ten-thousandth of the profit of my gallery for the rest of eternity. That part, the I'm going to give you one ten-thousandth of my profit of my gallery for the rest of eternity, that part 
turns that Keith Haring painting into security. We don't have case law in this area yet. There hasn't been enforcement in this area yet. I do think, though, both of these statements are going to be true. I think there's a lot of opportunities to have effectively community-based funding that is not a security in a way that is hard to do with fungible tokens because you can sell something that has value in and of itself, whereas a fungible token, it's very hard to have value in and of itself. If X copy, take a good example, wants to do all types of projects in the NFT field, and X copy sells a piece of one of one art for 100 ETH, or 666 grifters for however much the grifter sold, or an open edition for one ETH. This is fine. None of these things are securities. XCopy will have earned a lot of money. It will have been given to XCopy by people who broadly believe in the XCopy um, brand universe, etc. They might even be expecting a profit, but they're not in a common enterprise with XCopy. They own an XCopy painting. XCopy is off to go do something else, so they're not in a common enterprise together. So, I believe this ability to reach out to your community, customers, fans, whatever you want to call them, and sell them tokens directly that are, in this case, non-fungible, is a viable fundraising method here. I also believe quite a few people are going to screw it up. They are going to accidentally create securities, or in some cases on purpose, but I think in most cases, accidentally. Um, I think we'll have some enforcement in a couple of years against some of these accidental ones. They're not going to be able to chase around all of them because there's a lot of them. But they don't generally need to chase around a lot of them. They just go after a handful of them. And what happened with ICOs, they went after a handful of them and then everyone got worried and there was a less, there was less, uh, fewer ICOs after that. And so to me, this is the most interesting and new area in the financing space. Is there a way to use NFTs or what are the ways to use NFTs in a compliant manner? Now you might say, well, I don't believe in all these things. Okay, okay, I get it, you. Um, and the rules should change. Yeah, I actually think the Howey test needs to be updated or the credit investor rules need to be updated to account for the types of Web3 projects we're seeing. I do not believe that if you're spending 0.2 ETH and you get part of the royalties of an NFT DAO, you actually need to have a million dollars in net worth to be able to do it. But that's going to involve changing the regulations of the United States, and I don't think that's going to happen imminently. Maybe it will happen in a few years, but that's not the case today. And someone say, well, I live in, 
making some... I live in Kenya. These things don't apply in Kenya. Okay? They might not. The SEC rules obviously do not apply to you in Kenya. Um, I don't know what rules do apply in Kenya, though, and so you should check. And then you probably have to be a little bit careful if you have U.S. participants. Practically, you have an enforcement risk. Probably if you have a small project in Kenya that would have been a security under U.S. securities law, but you're in Kenya, it's a 50th project. No, it's probably practically going to bother you. This is not legal advice. But if it becomes large and huge and successful, I don't know, you never know. The U.S. regulatory authorities can be quite globally ambitious at times. So you still need to be careful, my suggestion. And I think there are interesting things to explore that are not securities. So I am going to wrap up here. It's been about an hour, so I can listen, take some questions. So let's take it again from the beginning. Step one, is it a security or not? If it is not, great, you can sell it to anyone. If it is, you either need to do an IPO, which practically speaking you're not going to do, or you need to sell it only to accredited investors, or you need to take advantage of the Reg A exemption for crowdfunding, which is also not totally non, not totally trivial. And so what that means in practice is because of these limitations imposed by the United States, even in this highly decentralized world, um, most things are funded by VCs. It remains difficult, I believe, to do a compliant fungible token offering. It is very possible to do a non-compliant NFT offering. But there might be interesting ways to start building communities with NFTs that are not securities and that do lead to a more decentralized model of financing than, than um, uh, what we have seen without non-fungible tokens. So, let's go to questions, and hopefully I have not absolutely bored everyone to death. This is, I think, the most, you know, the least artsy session we're going to do, but I do think it is important. Oh, and I need to open Discord so I can get fed the questions. <laughs> the first three questions are about nouns. Uh, <laughs> We're starting off with the hard questions. Let me read all three questions and I'll try and answer them together. Can you speak about the nouns now model this seems like the most sensible and successful type of DAO model I've seen and seems to circumvent the smart the securities issues put forth. Would you consider nouns an autonomous smart contract or a group of people working together? Are nouns SEC compliant in your point of view? 
Well, the noun smart contract is for sure a smart contract, right? It's, it's for sure an autonomous smart contract. It's creating a noun every day until eternity. That part is fairly Dao-like from the way that I think of Dao's, the old-fashioned way. Um, the way the treasury is allocated is not autonomous, right? I mean, there are Dao proposals and people who are holders of DAOs vote on the proposals and they vote to send it out of space or to buy skateboards for kids or what have you. And they're all, I mean, generally lovely things that they vote for, but they're not autonomous. An autonomous thing would not have humans in the decision-making, right? How Bitcoin allocates block rewards is autonomous. You know it's an autonomous because you don't have to get um, you don't have to get a bunch of people every 10 minutes to vote if this person needs to get a block reward or if this other person needs to get a block reward or if they've made a nice proposal or so on. Um, are nouns or some parts of nouns SEC compliant or not? I can't answer that question. And I'm not gonna answer that question for more or less anything because I'm not qualified to answer that question. Right? I'm not an attorney. I'm not a securities attorney. Um, I would feel comfortable, I guess, saying, you know, if X copy mints a one of one piece of art and that piece of art is just that piece of art, that's not a security. I'm pretty comfortable saying that. But what I don't want to get into, and if you notice, I'll never say this on Twitter either, is starting to get into the more ambitious projects and certainly projects that put the word down in their names, and then having to fine tune the differences between one or another or the third or the fourth or the fifth. Well, what about this one? Or what about the other one? It's not my position to come out and say, oh, no, 6529 said this, whatever project. It's not about nouns, right? I would, I would have given the exact same answer whatever people had asked this question of. And so even my non-answer, don't take it as an answer. Don't take it as like, oh, well, 6529 didn't say that this wasn't a security it means he thinks it is security. That's not what I'm saying either. I am saying I've thought about this topic very, very carefully, and I've thought about it before this class. Not before. I've thought about it for the last year and a half on my Twitter feed, and you will never find a tweet that says, I think this project's a security, or I think this project's not a security. Because if I get into being the securities regulator, well, that's not my job, and I don't have all the information, I don't even have all the knowledge, and so I don't want to make wrong decisions in either direction as a matter of policy. I don't want people like, oh, I've, 
I don't think this is security. And then it turns out it does. It is. And someone says, well, gosh, 6529 told me it's security. And then I bought it because I didn't think there was regulatory risk. And now Gary Gensler thinks that whatever now is a security, 6529 has led me astray. I do not want to lead you astray. And I certainly don't want to do the opposite either. Like if something turns out that it's not a security and then like I'm, I'm worried a little bit, but like I, maybe I'm too conservative. I certainly don't want to like say something inappropriate in a project. So I'm just not going to answer that question for any project as a matter of policy. I've already seen something come in for Prism and company. I'm not going to answer for that either. The part I do feel comfortable answering about the nouns now, which is not part of the Howey test, right, per se, right, is the nouns DAO in aggregate is not 100% autonomous. So the nouns do vote on how to spend the treasury. So that part requires humans. That doesn't mean it's a security. doesn't mean it's not a security. It just says it's the, the smart contract is autonomous. And I think that is fairly close to a DAO the way I used to think about it. All right, next question. Will the way the U.S. handles NFT projects legally be followed by the rest of the world, or can other countries do their own things? I think it's going to be a mix. I think the general U.S. policy and securities tends to be more restrictive than most of the rest of the world, and I think that's going to continue. Uh, I think most of the rest of the world is... Um, more principles, uh, less principles based, and I don't mean principles and like good principles or bad principles. Um, I think it is more prescriptive on what's a security and what's not a security. And I suspect that's not going to change. Whereas the U.S. approach tends to be more principles-based. I think that's not going to change either. So I don't think there's going to be some kind of end-to-end -end global convergence on this topic. What is your take on Gary Gensler refusing to allow spot BT, BTC ETFs and just stalling any project? Wall Street protection, delaying cryptos for CBDC adoption, can't seem to see any logical reason. I don't know. I mean, Gary likes BTC. So Gary might not like, Gary, as far as I can tell, is something close to Bitcoin Maxi in some ways. Like, so I don't think the reason is Gary doesn't like BTC, because if there's one crypto that he does like, it is in fact BTC. What I think the SEC's official position is, is something along the lines of it's still not comfortable with the way the BTC spot markets are working. They might be wrong. They might be right. They might be wrong, but in a way that it is because of their own intellectual biases, or maybe they see some things we don't. I mean, 
The crypto market participants, the institutional participants, have not exactly covered themselves in glory um, this cycle. There, so I don't know. I don't. I don't want to judge. My guess is, my guess is that they should uh, approve one, and they're not. But I wouldn't like put my hand one hundred percent in the fire that I'm a hundred percent certain that. They're wrong. Like, I think they're wrong, but I'm not sure they're wrong. So there might be there might be information that we don't have. Um, answers to. That we don't sorry, that we don't have visibility into. But they do. I don't know. Okay. How do you avoid, can you avoid security status if the work is being done by the person receiving the income instead of by the work of others? I'm a little concerned because the question came with quotes around the word work. So I'm assuming it just, I'm reading without quotes that we're not saying like, oh, fake work. We're pretending that the work has been done by others. Look, if the person receiving the income is doing the work to receive the income, without knowing the specific idea being shared here, that's generally not a security, that's generally income, right? Like, if I say I'm going to, you know, go make martinis for people and sell them and people are gonna pay me money for making them martinis, that's fine. I mean, that's not a security. And the, SEC is not concerned that there is information asymmetry between me, the martini maker, and me, the person collecting money for making martinis. Because presumably I know what I'm, I know all the information about what I'm doing. So, but it's hard for me to exactly imagine what that um, is. So, okay, next question. Without being financial advice, but perhaps being cultural advice, are there any funding models that seem particularly appealing or interesting to you in Web3 currently? Besides being an artist minting work who has managed to find a collector audience aside. Okay. This one's tricky. I'm going to, I don't know for sure. I've been thinking about this. So I'll try and share some ideas. I don't think they're great, to be honest. If I had like fully fleshed out great ideas, I'd already be doing them. So, for sure, artists selling art is great. It works. For artists who have found their audience or an audience, I think it's transformational. They should pay whatever taxes are due and wherever they live so they don't get in trouble from that. And other than that, it's just it's a 
it's a whole new exciting world for that. So I think that, I know you said not that model, but I'm reiterating, it's a great model. I think a second model of which probably the best example is Gary Vee, or it's easy to see Gary Vee, I'm not sure it's the best example of what should be done, but I think there's an, clearly an opportunity for personalities to monetize their own personality. I mean, the V friends were bought primarily, I think, and without in any way wanting to cast aspersions on the artwork, I think people bought them as a bet on Gary V, as an affinity with Gary V. Gary V has been very active on social media since the beginning. And I think if someone who was, and I wouldn't say that, you know, Gary V, and I hope he doesn't take this wrong way, is in any danger of being a museum great artist, right? I don't think people bought the Gary V art because, oh, well, this is someday the MoMA might want this, right? What I think they did was said, I feel a bet on Gary V. I feel an affinity with Gary V. I want to be part of something Gary V. So the ability to fund and capture a personality is probably something that's interesting here that didn't exactly exist before. Now you're going to say, okay, well, that's it's kind of like an artist run an audience. You know, what I'm really asking six, five to nine is, how, how do you do something for someone who's not already rich and famous, right? Okay, that this is a hard question. Now, first answer, which might not be what people are looking for, but it's probably okay. Tokens directed to charitable causes are fine. So it doesn't match the expectation of profit hurdle. So let's say you set up a nonprofit and your nonprofit goal, your, just to be cliche and lazy on this, was to save the Amazonian rainforest. And the way we're going to save it is by buying um, land in the Amazonian rainforest. And for every acre of land you buy, you get an NFT representing that acre of land, but someone has properly set up a 501c3 nonprofit organization in the United States. And when they issue the NFT, and let's say the NFT is, I don't know, 0.1 ETH, and you buy this one acre in the jungle, and the nonprofit gets the money, they buy the acre. The title of the acre is with the nonprofit, not with the NFT holder. again, without being legal advice, et cetera, et cetera, probably okay. And my sense is a better user experience than send money to someone, a charity in this case, and get an email receipt. I think once this stuff gets worked out, I believe it's going to be a more effective fundraising model for charity than what happens now. I'm just thinking of myself because it, it like it gamifies it. It makes it a little bit more fun. If I just sent 
$1,000 to the Amazonian Rainforest Charity and got some receipt that said, thank you for your contribution. You can use this to deduct it under taxes. It's fine. It's boring, but the fund's over the second. I've done my good deed, let's say, but the fund's over the second. I've sent it and gotten my receipt. If instead they said, here's a grid of whatever, 10,000 acres, and each acre is an NFT, and the NFT actually reflected the grid, it was a satellite photo or whatever, it's like, go pick out the acres you're trying to save. And then at the end, you have like 10 NFTs instead of an email receipt. They might still also send you an email receipt, that's fine, but like, you have 10 NFTs, and I can show them in my wallet, and I'm like, look, I saved these 10 acres, and maybe you'll say, gosh, you're getting ego benefits out of it. And I'm going to say, okay, so what? If I get ego benefits out of it, we save the acres. Isn't that a good thing? Or maybe I'll say, no, it's not for my ego. By me highlighting this in my wallet, a lot of people look at my wallet, I'm going to help other people learn about this, and maybe they'll save more acres. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Next bucket. I would like to see, and you're going to say, why don't you do one? And the answer is going to be, I haven't thought of one yet. I would like to see some things that are pure DAO-like, my OG definition. A smart contract that does something with NFTs. It does it once it's been deployed. It does it automatically, forever, without human interaction. That probably, okay. What that is, I don't know. I haven't figured it out. And it's not like it's an it. There are many possible it's there. But as a general principle, the idea that there'll be some smart contract on Ethereum every minute or hour or day or week, minting an NFT or selling an NFT or buying an NFT, and without the part that there's like a bunch of people in a Discord um, trying to decide something or another, I like that idea. I don't, I, I don't know what that idea would be, what, what it would do, but I like that idea. Um, if you're investing in NF any NFT projects that may be subject to legal issues, do holders have to feel a back fear a backlash? I'll end with this question. And I think the holders need to think about this in two, in two buckets. The first bucket is, um, uh, The following. Will the price of the NFTs in that project go down? Probably. Right? Like if someone comes to a project and says, oh, we've received, we're being sued by the SEC because our NFTs that give rights to the profits of the DAO might be secure. Well, everyone, no one's going to like that, right? So the price is going to go down. Or the people are going to sell. Second, 
maybe they'll be forced to change what they do. So maybe they'll be less appealing. Now, will you a holder have any legal risk? Probably not. Now, this is not legal advice. There was a very strange and interesting case where there was this DAO that was pretending to be kind of autonomous, but really wasn't. And the CFTC kind of said, oh, uh, I might go after people who voted because they were like part of the team. Now, in practice, they only went out after the project promoters. And there was a dissenting opinion in the CFTC that says, you know, basically, this is nuts. Like, since when would people in a DAO have to think about this topic? Um, and, okay. Um, do I believe this is a major risk? No, I do not. Do I believe it is zero risk in all scenarios? Like, no, I mean, it's conceivable. Let's say you were not the project promoter, but you were buyer number one and you bought a bunch of the NFTs and you went out and started promoting it yourself and voting and doing things. Could you imagine some relatively extreme, but not completely irrational cases or the SEC or the CFTC, no, you, you were part of this. You were doing this. You were, you were kind of like the person selling the unregistered securities. You weren't just a buyer of them. Yeah, conceivably, I can see and say that. I haven't seen too many things in the NFT space that would have um, triggered my concern on this topic, but I could imagine um, it happened. So I will end here thank you as always everyone uh for joining and uh see you back on twitter